March 12, 2011, started out as just another day at the Lululemon store in Bethesda, Maryland, when the manager, Rachel, arrived at around 8 a.m. to open up. But when she went to unlock the door, she saw that it was already open. And as soon as she walked inside, she knew that something was very wrong. Things had been knocked over, there were lights on, signs of a struggle, and then she heard a noise. It sounded like someone was in the back of the store, moaning. Terrified, Rachel backed outside and called 911. She saw a guy sitting outside the Apple store on a bench. His name was Ryan Haw, and he was there because the company had just released their new iPad 2. The lines to get into the store had been insane the day before. So on that morning, Ryan was determined to get his iPad. The manager told Ryan that she was waiting for the police. But once she said that she'd heard a voice inside the store, he volunteered to go inside with her to check things out. So they went back inside. He walked to the back of the store and saw a trail of blood and a woman lying face down at the end of a narrow hallway. Blood was everywhere and they could see that the back of the woman's head had been badly beaten. All they could tell about the victim was that she was white and female. Ryan told police that he tapped her body, but she didn't respond. They could see rope lying near her neck and a red toolbox near the body. The victim was 30-year-old Jana Murray, a manager at Lululemon who had been working for the company for two years. The back of her pants had been cut open Investigators would later determine that she had been beaten and tortured with several different weapons from inside that red toolbox. Ryan pushed open a bathroom door and saw the other woman, 26-year-old Brittany Norwood, another Lululemon employee. Brittany had blood on her face. Her hands and feet had been tied with zip ties, but she was still alive. Now, Bethesda is an affluent area near Washington, D.C. So on that morning... Moms on their way to the school run, political workers, people walking their labradoodles and drinking their morning coffee, were shocked to see that crime scene tape go up. The Lululemon murder shocked the community, and the hunt for the killer would eventually make police question everything that they thought they knew about the nature of evil. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. After setting up the crime scene, police began canvassing the area and talking to people who worked in the stores nearby. According to Dan Morse's book, The Yoga Store Murder, an employee at the Apple store had worked the night shift the night before. She said that she heard yelps, squeals, and a dragging noise. A security guard said that he had also heard a woman screaming, but ignored the sounds because he was listening to music. The Apple store employee had asked the security guard if they should call the police. But the security guard said that to him, it just sounded like some personal drama. Tragically, they decided not to call the authorities. And this was a decision that would come back to haunt them later. Because this was such a safe area, the employees might have deluded themselves into thinking that they didn't need to worry about what was going on on the other side of that wall. Police rushed Brittany to the hospital. She was in shock. And bit by bit, she told police what happened. Like Jaina, her clothes were ripped to pieces. She was wearing white footy socks that had been soaked in blood. She had a lot of scratches all over her body, 
along her arms, on her stomach and torso. She said that the night before, after the store closed at 9 p.m., she and Jaina had stayed behind as they would normally to finish everything up. The two women left together at around 9.45 p.m. Jaina deactivated the alarm and they went their separate ways. Brittany walked down toward the subway. Jaina walked toward her car. But a few minutes later, Brittany said that she realized that she left her wallet back in the store. So she called and texted Jaina to see if Jaina could let her back in to get her stuff. She said Jaina told her that was no problem. Jaina said she had left her laptop behind too. So she agreed to meet Brittany. And Brittany said that a few minutes later, they met outside the store. Once again, they deactivated the alarm, but this time they didn't rearm it. Brittany said this was because they expected to be in and out really quickly. At that point, two men came into the store. According to Brittany, one was around six feet tall, the other shorter, about five foot three. Both were wearing ski masks that covered their faces. They threw Brittany on the ground, forced her to open the store safes, and then tied her up and raped her. She said that the attackers forced her to open the store safes. Then the smaller attacker threw her on the ground while the taller man raped and assaulted Jaina. Brittany said that her attacker tied her up and raped her. She said that she had gaps in her memory because the men had hit her so hard. And she said that she couldn't be sure of the men's races, but told police that they seemed to be young and white. As detectives investigated the crime scene, They found that a store that sold $200 leggings and $25 bottles of water was not the type of place where they expected serious crime to happen. For example, there were no surveillance cameras in the store. Detectives interviewed Brittany on four separate occasions. She was confused, which detectives were told was not uncommon after such a vicious attack. Each time, she was able to give them more details. She said that the men who had attacked her pushed her face down onto Jaina's dead body before she was raped. She said that one of them told her the only reason that she was not killed sooner was because she was fun to f- Brittany said that the attackers went through her purse, swore at her, and called her a dirty slut and the N-word. Police found the logs for the store alarms and saw that, just like Brittany told them, they had been deactivated for a second time at 10.05 p.m. And they found Jaina's car, a silver Pontiac, parked a few blocks away. Meanwhile, while they waited for more details from Brittany, detectives went back into Lululemon. There was blood everywhere. They knew they needed to follow the spatter patterns to figure out the order of events. And there was a lot of evidence. There were single drops of blood and a pair of bloody shoe prints that appeared to lead out the door. Now, a lot of people would walk through the crime scene, but detectives got a lucky break. The blood and the shoe prints had dried, so forensic experts were able to follow the killer's steps, and they knew that retracing these steps would be the key to solving this case. The store's safe was open. There were signs of a struggle everywhere. A TV had been knocked over, items had been thrown out of gym bags, receipts were on the floor. In the middle of everything, there was a bloody palm print. Meanwhile, Jaina's body was autopsied and sent for forensic testing. Her body was so disfigured that she could not be positively identified without using DNA evidence. Jaina had huge slashes on her arm, dozens of defensive wounds. She also had a four-inch wound on the back of her scalp. She had rope burns and fibers on her hands. Investigators believe that as the rope slipped on her, Jaina tried to grab it, 
It had been a brutal, bloody battle, and Jaina had fought for her life to her last breath. She had several stab wounds in her neck and on her back. Police described her face as destroyed. According to court documents, Jaina suffered at least 331 injuries. She had been stabbed, beaten, and slashed when she tried to block the attacks. Prosecutors actually did the math and figured out that if Jaina's attacker had hit her about every three seconds, factoring in the time that it would have taken when pausing to switch weapons, which they knew that the attacker had done because the wounds on her body were all different shapes, the beating would have gone on for nearly 17 minutes. Forensic experts were also able to figure out that Jaina's heart had been beating and she had been alive almost the entire time this was happening to her. Tests on her brain showed bruising, the type most often seen in car crash victims. Examining the autopsy photos was kind of like putting together a puzzle. Detectives had to look at the autopsy pictures and match the wounds to the different weapons that could have been used. In the toolbox, there was a hammer, a wrench, a screwdriver. There had also been a Buddha statue, box cutters, and rope. They figured out that Jaina's face had probably been slashed with the box cutter, which they believed was also used to cut her clothes. At first, they hypothesized that the Buddha statue could have caused the four-inch head injury. But in the end, after a lot of testing, they examined the wound shape and figured out that that four-inch gash actually matched a black metal clothes rack that had been used to hang merchandise on. And detectives were able to track down footage from the Apple store next door. They hoped that it may shed some light on the identity of the guys they were looking for. Just after 11 p.m., police saw two men on camera. One was dressed head-to-toe in black. They were wearing ski caps that had kind of been pulled back. The residents of Bethesda were terrified. Security guards were walking people to their cars. Stores were buying extra security cameras. People were scared. They knew there was a team of killer rapists on the loose and thought they might be next. Police did a press conference. They said they were looking for two male suspects, one taller than the other one, wearing dark clothes, gloves, and masks. The press jumped on this story. This was two women who'd been brutally attacked, sexual assault, and murder in one of the wealthiest areas in the nation's capital. The manhunt for the suspects was on. Police were searching for the masked men who beat and tortured Brittany and murdered Jaina. They got hundreds of tips. But, as is common with highly publicized cases, police had to separate fact from fiction. They got a lot of tips about shady guys in hoodies or women who were upset about their abusive boyfriends, and those tips tended to lead nowhere. But a lot of people did call in to tell them about a local man named Keith Lockett. Keith was tall, and detectives said that he often hung out with a shorter white man. He was known for being drunk and homeless and kind of starting trouble, and he had a criminal record. Also, when police went to talk to Keith, he had a black eye, and apparently he told detectives a couple of different stories about how that happened. So police got a court order for a DNA sample from Keith. But when it came back, it was not a match. So once again, they went back to the store. There was a lot of stuff in that store to go through. And among that stuff, there was cleaning supplies. Windex, a bottle of 409, and a scrub brush. Now the fact that there were cleaning products openly out at the crime scene that appeared to have been used raised questions for detectives. 
That's something that you often see when a perpetrator is trying to stage a crime scene. And at the same time, they were also asking questions about Brittany's injuries. How was it that Jaina could have been so brutally mutilated and Brittany got away with only very superficial injuries? A police officer who'd been working security at the hospital also noticed one of Brittany's injuries, a small one-inch gash on her right hand. According to the book, The Yoga Murders, at the time, he thought to himself that that was the type of injury that sometimes happens when people are cutting something with a knife. The knife slips, and they end up cutting themselves. Detectives were also reviewing the information that the female Apple Store employee and security guard had given them. The female employee was adamant. She said that she heard two female voices, no male voices, and that she heard one of them say, Talk to me. Don't do this. Stop. Oh, God. Then there was the fact that the bloody sneaker print stopped at the back door. There was blood on the exit bar. So it almost seemed like someone had tried to push the back door open and then gotten dragged back inside. In the stockroom, detectives found a box. And inside that box, they found zip ties. Now these were the same type of zip ties that had been used to restrain Brittany. Now alarm bells are definitely ringing for these detectives because they're wondering how a pair of attackers would have gone into the store, decided they needed to tie someone up, and then known to go all the way to the back stock room to get zip ties. Parts of Brittany's story weren't making sense. So detectives started to wonder about another theory, that maybe Brittany could have known the killers, or maybe even let them in. That Jaina's murder could have been some kind of inside job, maybe a robbery gone wrong. There was also Brittany's description of her ordeal that raised red flags. Every time she talked to detectives, her rape became more graphic and more horrifying. She compared the killers to characters in the video game Grand Theft Auto. And detectives thought that her description of the killers kind of sounded like something that someone who watched a horror or crime movie would come up with, not reality. But detectives had to be sure, because accusing an African-American rape victim of making up a story could be politically explosive in the best of times. They couldn't just have a hunch. They had to make absolutely sure that they were on the right track, which meant that they needed to find out more about Jaina and her relationship with Brittany. Jaina grew up in Texas. She was blonde and friendly and outgoing, super confident and a person who lived for adventure. She bungee jumped, skydived, and traveled the world. While working at Lululemon, Jaina was also in school. She was just about to graduate from Johns Hopkins University, where she had been working on two master's degrees. Doing two degrees at once was just like her, according to friends and family. She was a person who lived life at full speed. And she had big plans after graduation. Her longtime boyfriend lived in Washington State, where he was working on a PhD. But they had been shopping for rings, and Jaina was planning to move closer to him. She had been beefing up her resume to apply for a corporate job at Lululemon in Vancouver. She got involved with Lululemon because she was interested in business and marketing. She was impressed by their business ethos and by their marketing campaign. And since her boyfriend was across the country, she also wanted to make friends. Jaina's murder shocked the yoga community, which is supposed to be all about peace and nonviolence. And Lululemon, especially, was known for having employees who were young and attractive and ambitious, focused on peaceful, ethical living and personal development. Brittany had been working for Lululemon for a few months at the time of the murder. And like Jaina, she seemed to fit right in with the culture. 
Brittany was super athletic. She did yoga, running, spinning, kept herself in amazing shape. And she also projected success. Brittany was born in a suburb of Seattle, in a loving family that detectives would later compare to a real-life Cosby show. Growing up, she had eight brothers and sisters. And so Brittany's parents worked hard. There was a lot of love in the house, but also, not surprisingly with nine children, some financial hardship. Her parents reportedly filed for bankruptcy twice. According to the Yoga Murders book, Brittany's friends and neighbors said the same thing that her Lululemon colleagues would say later about Brittany. She seems great, friendly, outgoing, fun. But then, things tend to go missing around her. When Brittany was a kid, it started with petty theft. She would take coins from a penny jar or costume jewelry from one of her neighbors. Later, it would be cash from her coworkers. As she grew up, even though she was only five foot three, Brittany became an accomplished athlete and a star soccer player. After high school, Brittany went to Stony Brook University on Long Island on a soccer scholarship. According to the book, one of her teammates basically said the same thing. Brittany's fun to be around, but be careful. She steals and she lies. Once Brittany's teammates noticed that their money started going missing, the coach confronted Brittany. So Brittany ended up leaving the soccer team and with no scholarship, that meant that she was soon out of school. So she never officially graduated from Stony Brook, but that didn't stop her from putting it on her resume when she applied for jobs. After college, Brittany worked at Bank of America and then started working in a dental practice and dating the dentist. But their relationship was not exactly smooth sailing. Her ex-boyfriend said that things started falling apart after he caught Brittany in some lies. So eventually they broke up, but that's when things really got ugly because Brittany had a key to his place and apparently she used that key to break in and take some of his new girlfriend's stuff. The couple ended up taking out a restraining order against Brittany. In court, Brittany agreed to give the belongings back and stay away from the couple. It seemed like she just wanted the case to go away. And with friends like she did with everything else, Brittany came up with a cover story to explain her actions. She said that her ex had started this legal battle with her because she caught him cheating on her. Soon, Brittany had a new job at a hotel, but she continued to have financial problems. She was evicted due to non-payment of rent. But through it all, friends said that Brittany had very expensive tastes. For example, she went to one of Washington, D.C.'s top stylists, who charged $275 for a haircut, and this was back in 2011. Like so many other young women, Brittany was attracted to the aspirational nature of Lululemon Athletica. It was more than just a job. It was a lifestyle. And after the murder, several people spoke out about how working there could, at times, feel more like a cult than a job. Being a Lululemon educator was an immersive experience, and the company takes personal development very seriously. They offer employees a free landmark form course after six months there. They have an annual fitness festival called Seawees. It's held in Vancouver and involves a half marathon. An article on Ranker.com read, quote, If you want to get ahead, you need to eat paleo and suck up with the best of them. We also hope you enjoy objectivist fiction, daily yoga workouts, chia seeds, and personified demographics, end quote. This is referring to the fact that new employees are given a ton of materials. They're expected to participate in group workouts, sometimes, according to some employees, even on their off hours. They're given motivational CDs and books, 
including Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Apparently, the owner loved the capitalist self-sufficiency that the author preached. Lululemon's ideal female customer was described as a fictional woman named Ocean, a beautiful, fit, ethical shopper with thin thighs, no kids, and money to burn. One anonymous employee wrote about her experience working for Lululemon on Jezebel. She wrote that the atmosphere there is, quote, delusional, hypocritical, and cult-like, end quote. She said that she started working for the company right out of college. She said she was attracted by the idea of the company's premise of living ethically. But behind the scenes, she found out that all that clean living ended up being constant pressure. Even on their off hours, she said employees felt like they had to adapt to this yoga lifestyle, which meant hours of yoga and a lot of dietary food restrictions. Lululemon didn't really advertise. Instead, the employees were kind of an early version of Instagram influencers, but in real life. So they were expected to embody the company, wear the clothes everywhere, and be out in the community. Brittany was first hired at the Georgetown store, where her coworkers and customers loved her, at least at first. But then, like so many people in Brittany's past, employees started to notice that cash was missing from their wallets. Then came shop night. This is the time of the year when employees at Lululemon are allowed to buy merchandise at 70% off, but they have to stick to a limit of $1,000. Brittany asked one of her managers if she could go over that limit. The manager said yes, but later said that they were shocked because Brittany bought over $2,000 worth of stuff. So the manager was upset about that, and on top of that, a lot of the staff members were gossiping by this point. They were pretty sure that Brittany was the one stealing the money. Money that they pointed out only seemed to go missing on Britney's shifts. So the manager was in a tough spot. She suspected Britney of the thefts, but had no hard evidence. So she fired her for the shop night incident, which she called discount theft. But later, the manager's decision was overturned, and Britney was allowed to go back to work. Britney came to the store in Besida. On the surface, everything seemed to be back to normal. But behind the scenes, Britney's life was coming apart. She was in debt. Collectors were calling constantly. Once again, her bank account was overdrawn, and she had judgments against her of almost $20,000 in unpaid student loans. Brittany had always had ways of getting quick cash. She answered ads on Craigslist for men offering to act as sugar daddies. On the ads, she said that she wanted a relationship, but she also seemed open to arrangements of casual sex and getting an allowance. Now, during this time, Jaina was focusing on her next move across the country to be closer to her boyfriend in Washington State. Then came the final catalyst for Brittany's world starting to collapse. In late February, one of her co-workers noticed that an $80 bottle of Vera Wang was stolen from her after she had just pointed out the perfume to Brittany. In March, it happened again. Another co-worker noticed that $10 of the $13 she'd had in her wallet was gone. She suspected Brittany, but almost questioned herself because it seemed like such a ridiculously small amount to steal. She asked herself if someone would really bother going through her wallet just to steal 10 of the $13. Why wouldn't they just take it all? But she probably didn't understand that this was part of Brittany's personality. Part of the thrill she got was from stealing from people without them knowing, making them question themselves. Rachel, the manager who opened up on March 12th and found Jaina's body, said that she had talked to Jaina before she died about the thefts. She said that they both suspected Brittany. Jaina talked to her friends about it too. She texted a friend of hers the night she was killed 
She wrote, quote, I have to close with a thief tonight. Do you think that I will catch her? End quote. The friend told police that she had texted Jana back that night. She got no response from her friend, but she wasn't alarmed because even though she knew that this had the potential to be emotionally stressful, she never imagined that it would end in a physically violent confrontation. She actually signed off with, hope you survive. Also after the murder, a former employee of the store spoke out about the anti-theft policy. It turned out that Lululemon's anti-theft policy was pretty questionable. Basically, it consisted of having people check each other's bags before they left. So when there are only two people left in the store, that puts you in the extremely awkward position of having to potentially discover theft in front of the thief. And that's exactly what happened on that fateful night. Jaina opened Brittany's bag. She saw a pair of workout pants with the price tag still attached. Brittany said that she had bought them using her employee discount. But when she couldn't provide a receipt, Jaina asked her who rang up the sale. Brittany gave her the name of a co-worker. Then they left, deactivated the alarm, and went their separate ways. But what Brittany didn't know was that just a couple of minutes later, before she called and texted Jaina, Jaina had already called the co-worker who Brittany had named. And that co-worker said she had not sold Brittany those workout pants. Jaina then called the store manager and said, according to what the manager told police, we caught the bitch. They planned to fire Brittany first thing in the morning. So by now, police have suspicions that Brittany is the culprit, that she engineered the whole thing, that she knew she was caught and had killed Jaina to avoid getting fired. But the final piece of evidence that sealed her fate were the shoes. Lululemon sold expensive athletic wear, but they didn't sell shoes. They did, however, have a couple of pairs of men's shoes in the store, which police were told were for alterations. These men's shoes were Reeboks, size 14, and they were a match to the blood tracks. So police were wondering, if Brittany had been telling the truth about the intruders, why were there only two pairs of shoe tracks, not three? And why would the killer have gone into the store and put on a pair of shoes from the store, walked around in blood, and then left them behind? It made no sense. Police believed that Brittany had brutally attacked and killed Jaina, hitting her over 300 times. And then she walked through Jaina's blood to stage the crime scene. She cut herself and at some point laid down near her dead co-worker and waited for someone to arrive. Police wanted to confront Brittany, but they still needed to find the masked men on the tape so they could be ruled out. While they did, they examined another piece of physical evidence, Brittany's rape kit. Brittany had told detectives that she had been pushed down onto Jaina's body, brutally raped and sexually assaulted with a wooden coat hanger. Yet the exam did not seem to reveal this type of trauma. It read in part, quote, patient vaginal examination revealed no tears or tenderness cervix had several white lesions, end quote. Police found no evidence that Jaina had been sexually assaulted either. They said the crotch area of her pants had been cut to stage the attack. They were also taking another look at the blood evidence. The direction of the blood flow on Brittany's face was straight up and down, which would indicate that she had been standing up when she was struck. So this part of her story checked out. But the blood pattern would also mean that she couldn't have been lying down for hours, as she claimed, because if that had been the case, the blood would have spread out to the sides of her face. Detectives believe that after coming back into the store, Brittany and Jaina 
got into a fight about the missing money. They say Brittany beat her, pausing several times, enough time to change weapons five different times. She hit Jana with items in the toolbox, and after killing her, detectives said that Brittany took off her size 7 pink New Balance shoes. Then she put on the Reeboks and walked around to create footprints for the fake killer. Then they said she cleaned the bottoms of the shoes with the cleaning products. But she didn't do a perfect job. There were scallop-shaped swishy patterns in some of the blood, which investigators believed were left when Brittany's untied shoelaces swiped through the blood. Police were also testing Jana's car. And in that car, they found a ski cap. There were traces of blood on the cap. And while they were testing the blood, Brittany came to them and told them that she had even more details. Her story was changing again. This time she said that attackers had forced her to go through Jana's bag, find the keys, and move Jana's car. She said that they told her that if she wasn't back in 10 minutes, they would kill both her and Jana. She said that she'd seen a policeman at one point while moving the vehicle and been too terrified to speak out. Now, this story that Brittany had walked out covered in blood to a car, saw a policeman, and didn't flag him down, but even though she had car keys in her hands and she was by herself, chose to go back into the store with the rapists and killers, made no sense. Police were pretty sure that Brittany was telling them this story because she must have realized that she left the ski cap in the car and the blood on it would match Brittany, which it did. During their fourth and final Q&A with Brittany, she came to the station with her brother and one of her sisters. They left her alone in the interrogation room and had her brother go in and talk to her. And then police kind of watched in shock because there were several conversations that played out. I guess Brittany's brother didn't realize that surveillance cameras were on inside these rooms. So one of the detectives was literally eating a burrito and watching while the brother talked to one of their sisters and said, Brittany told him that Jaina had accused her of shoplifting and that she lost it and basically admitted to the murder. Brittany was arrested and charged with murder. Her attorneys looked into several possible defenses, including the possibility that playing soccer had somehow injured Brittany's brain and made her more aggressive, but they didn't end up using that argument in court. Detectives also found the two men in black for the video. It turned out that these guys worked in a restaurant kitchen a few blocks away so they were cleared. At trial, Brittany's defense attorneys said that Brittany had gotten into a fight with Jaina. She panicked, and the fight spun out of control. The workers at the Apple store next door took the stand, too. They talked about the noises they heard that night. They were clearly distraught because they never called the police. And this led to a lot of articles about the bystander effect and how we as humans rationalize not doing anything to help, especially since in court details came out about what a prolonged, vicious attack this had been. It went on for around 17 minutes. Brittany paused at several points to change out the weapons. Jana ran for the emergency exit door, but she never made it. And Brittany kept on beating her until the very end. I can't imagine what Jana's parents went through when they heard that the forensic evidence showed that her heart had been beating and she had been alive for over 10 minutes. This had not been a quick or easy death. The prosecutor said, quote, As humans, we want to believe it's the masked men. We want that. That makes us feel better. You don't want to believe it's the articulate, educated, attractive girl next door. You don't want to believe that because that's someone you might trust, 
end quote. The prosecution said this was not a crime of passion. It was the action of someone who had no conscience, felt no guilt about stealing from her close friends and family, and thrived on keeping secrets. Brittany knew she was about to be fired, and she was afraid that after getting fired from Lululemon, she would lose the personal training job that she had set up at Equinox, a high-end gym where people pay over $200 a month in memberships and all the bathrooms are stocked with Kiehl's products. This would give her access to a whole new pool of clients and potentially of dates, and she didn't want to let it go. On November 2nd, 2011, the jury found Brittany guilty of first-degree murder. Brittany made a statement. She said, quote, For the Murray family, what do I say when your daughter's gone and I'm the one convicted of her murder? I know what I say today won't take the pain away over the loss of Jaina. I hope for the Murray family, someday you'll be able to find forgiveness in your heart. I am truly sorry, end quote. Some of Brittany's family members appealed to the judge to grant her the possibility of parole, saying that they wanted to give her some hope. But in January 2012, the court sentenced Brittany to life in prison without the possibility of parole. At sentencing, the judge said that Brittany had a loving family that seemed to be the personification of the American dream. He also called her one hell of a liar and said that she had reveled in the gore as she beat Jaina to death. Lululemon released a statement. It read in part, quote, We have all been deeply affected by the loss of Jaina Murray and the violation of our safe and loving store environment. The actions of Brittany Norwood that night are the antithesis of the values of our company and are not reflective of the outstanding people who work for Lululemon, end quote. Another former Lululemon worker talked to ABC7. They said that they believed that the store policy was unsafe for employees. The company may have had a false sense of security because they thought that their employees were supposed to be peaceful and adhere to yoga values. But remember that narcissists and red-collar criminals are amazing at putting up a mask for the world to see. And when they're backed into a corner, they will not hesitate to lash out with extreme violence. No one should ever be put in the position of having to confront a potential red-collar criminal. This anonymous employee said, quote, how uncomfortable, how unprofessional, how awkward to put one person alone in the position of having to actually catch someone in the act, end quote. After Brittany was caught, a lot of people in the community seemed to be relieved because there was no random killer out on the loose. It turned out that the two women had known each other. But in a way, I find this even more terrifying. It's terrifying to think that a coworker who you get along with and talk to and work with every day and trust is willing to brutally beat and murder you over a pair of workout pants and that that type of person could be hiding in plain sight in other people's offices. Jaina's devastated family members and her boyfriend all spoke in court, according to NBC4. Her brother Hugh called March 12, 2011, my family's September 11, 2001. He said nothing will ever be normal, nothing will ever be the same. Her boyfriend said, all of my plans for the future were shattered and laid bare on that day. Jaina's brother said that he struggled to explain her death to his two young sons. He summed it up by saying that his two boys don't check the closet for boogeyman before bed at night anymore. Instead, they check for Brittany Norwood.
Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <laughs>